Ray, are you behaving yourself? Good to be in church, right? Amen. Well, Acts chapter 7 is where we are tonight. And uh, hopefully that's queued up back there and ready to go. Yep, they're shaking their heads. That's a good thing. Otherwise, we're going to do sock puppets. But uh, this is a, a chapter that is called Stephen's Defense. And uh, if you remember last time we were together, Stephen was snatched up by the Sanhedrin. He's brought before them. They have really had it with him because he is embarrassing them. And as, as all the disciples and apostles were, why? Because God is moving through them and he's not moving through the religious leaders. And uh, they are really frustrated with that. And this is uh, quite a long chapter, 60 verses, but uh, there's a lot of history that's given in here, and there's a lot of uh, things about Israel's journey from its inception to its current state here that Stephen's going to talk about, and in just a minute we're going to watch it, but let's thank God for the Word tonight. Father, we thank you for the Word. We thank you for this time to come together and study your Word. Father, I pray that as we see it with our eyes, Lord, Lord, that it would come alive to us. Holy Spirit, quicken our hearts and quicken our minds tonight so as we enjoy what chapter 7 contains, you would reveal it to us and you would illuminate it to us and that we would walk away with a greater understanding of your word and a clearer picture of who Jesus is. We ask that in Jesus' name and the church said, Amen. Amen. Well, enjoy all 60 verses of chapter 7. Kill the lights. Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt. He sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned 
about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. 
They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Oh, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet? Your fathers did not persecute. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You, who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed him. Dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees. Cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death.
Well, on that happy note, Stephen is dragged before the Sanhedrin, and we see this whole situation was brought about by the fact that he wasn't doing bad stuff. He wasn't breaking any of their rules or their laws as they accused him of. He's dragged before them because he's doing signs and wonders and miracles. Sick people are being healed. Captives are being set free. Demons are being cast out. This is what the apostles were doing. They were doing good works. They were doing things that needed to be done that hadn't been done for a long time. So he's dragged in front of them. And, and this whole chapter is referenced, all 60 verses called Stephen's defense. Uh, maybe the heading in your Bible calls it Stephen's defense. But honestly, this is really not a defense at all because if this was a defense, it wasn't a very good one. In fact, it's not a defense in any estimation because really what it is is a testimony. He testifies against them. He testifies because they are persecuting not just him and not calling him into account for doing good works. They are persecuting the gospel. They are persecuting Jesus and they are resisting the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't a defense in the sense that he was trying to say some things to change their mind to get them to relent and let him go. It was a testimony. God was speaking through Stephen to testify against this generation of leadership here. Now, it might seem strange that a, a defense is all about Israel's history. Did you notice? I mean, did you hear all the talking he did? I mean, that was a lot, wasn't it? At, at certain points there, I wanted to stone him. You ever get around people who talk way too much? Don't raise your hand. This is not. I mean, if you can't get to the point, don't go on the journey. Come on, loosen up Wednesday night. Right? I mean, th these were a lot of words he said. Covered a lot of topics. And, you know, if this was a defense, if he was a lawyer, I mean, this is all over the place, it seems like. What in the world are you doing here? In this moment, you know, I mean, he talks about Israel's spiritual journey. He goes from the inception of Israel through Abraham all the way to the present moment. And it's, you know, he just lays all of this stuff out. Now, this wasn't a winning legal strategy to argue for his release his guilt was already decided. Do you know, there are some venues, there are some systems, there are some legal proceedings where the outcome is already decided. Hello? Like when Jesus stood before the high priest. So the outcome was already decided. They wanted to get rid of him. They want to get rid of Stephen. He is a, a burr in their saddle. What the apostles are doing, they've been warned over and over again uh, to not speak in Jesus' name. This is not a winning legal strategy. They already meant to kill him, and they weren't going to be, uh, you know, argued out of that. It wasn't going to happen any other way. So what God does is he fills his mouth to testify against the Sanhedrin, to, to call them into account for exactly what they're doing. And it happens in a really powerful way. Now, verses 2 through 53 provide us 51 verses of a history lesson that chronicle the pattern of spiritual and moral waywardness that we see in full bloom in the life of the Sanhedrin. 
This whole system, this whole procession that he does, this whole account, really what he's doing is he's documenting as he goes through Israel's history, the very fact that Israel and the leadership and all of these people who stoned the prophets and resisted the move of God, that there was a pattern there of spiritual and moral waywardness. Now, you know, when the Sanhedrin's listening to him give the account, the historical account, if you notice in the video, they did a good job they're shaking their heads because he was exactly right exactly accurate in what he was saying and they agreed with what he was saying but they weren't realizing that he was laying out all of this to show the pattern that was at work in them uh the reason for the long explanation was to show how uh bad decisions in israel's history led to patterns and patterns led to moral ruts and those lo- led to spiritual blindness and then it, they got to a place where they resisted the very move of god you see that's the pattern here and i want you to see some of that because you know this is the pattern of religion once you don't have a relationship with god you become religious once you're religious all you have is your rule keeping and rule keeping will lend itself to moral ruts and when you get caught in these moral ruts eventually these ruts will bring you so far away from god that when god moves you don't like it and when god speaks you don't want to hear it And these guys were resisting. Look, they knew the prophets. They knew Isaiah and Jeremiah. They knew them inside out and backwards. The prophecies that were given, all the messianic prophecies about Jesus, they knew them all. Yet when the Messiah stood right in front of them, they couldn't recognize them. Moral ruts that led them away from God. Now they were resisting the move of God, the Holy Spirit of God. You know, we need to be sober because this happens to church people. Come on, it's quiet on Wednesday night. Certainly nobody here, but you know, you've seen pictures, you've heard stories. Uh, this can happen to us once we fall out of love with Jesus and, you know, we become, you know, just rule keepers or just traditional people. We've got to keep our love relationship with Jesus alive. Now, verse one starts off with the high priest demanding Stephen give an account for himself. No, they're trumped up charges. They drag him in there by force. And sometimes, you know, they demand you give an account of yourself for what? For healing the sick, for, you know, preaching the gospel, for giving people hope. Yeah. Give us an account to that you know sometimes the best defense is to say nothing at all amen i want if you have a big mouth raise your hand this is for you guys sometimes the best i mean some people they don't say anything right some people i mean if you have a big mouth you know you always want to give a defense you always want to get in the fray you always want to you know weigh in and give your two cents come on don't look so holy right now on me And the thing is, sometimes the best defense is to say nothing. You know, Jesus refused to dignify some of the false charges that were hurled against him. He stood there, you know, fulfilling prophecy like a, you know, a sheep before his shearers. He was dumb. He he didn't say anything. Why? Because some of the things that were, he was accused of, they didn't dignify a response. They were so ridiculous. When it comes to people having, you know, the authority to question and judge us, we should categorically ignore certain accusations that are hurled against us. Why? Because, you know what, it's a waste of time to defend ourselves to people who don't have authority over us. 
If they have authority over you, notice when, you, when they were dealing with people who were in authority, he, he, Stephen's going to give an account. You know, when Paul stood before the high priest, you know, I didn't know you were the high priest. You know, there, there, was, there was order and all that. But there's some people that will call you to give an account, and they don't have any authority over you. So don't defend yourself. If you've ever found yourself defending yourself to someone who didn't have any authority over you, you realize they've already won. They've got the leverage over you. Sometimes the best defense is to say nothing at all. Uh, Stephen is in a spot where he is going to, you know, give somewhat of a defense. Really, it's a testimony to testify, and God is speaking through him. Now, Stephen doesn't defend himself to get himself out of trouble. Uh, he doesn't rebut the false witnesses or the fake charges. Instead, he testifies, and God fills his mouth because God has got something to say to these leaders that is going to be, you know, they, they can either hear it or they can ignore it and it's going to be their choice. It's a moment of choice for them. Verses two through four, he addresses them, notice, with humility and dignity. He says, brothers and fathers. Now notice that, you know, it's not, it's not just him being rhetorical or just, you know, kind of just uh, greasing the wheels here. He, he really has this heart towards them. Why? Because they're, you know, they're Jews and they're his brothers and the older men there that were in charge, he considered them fathers. And I want you to see that. Well, you know, they drug him in there and they took him by force and these guys were all messed up and why did he have to be respectful to them? Well, listen to me. Uh, he addresses them like that and he is respectful and this is the reason why. The righteous never have to be nasty and aggressive and disrespectful. Just two people agree, just two. We don't have to get nasty. We don't have to be disrespectful. We don't have to be combative with people. Hello? When Christians get like that, we turn off more people than we attract. Oh, but you don't know how to, you know, I mean, how to just get out of there. Listen, if you can't, if you and I can't be in control enough to, to, to understand that, you know what, we represent God, then maybe we should withdraw ourselves and not speak at all. There again, be silent. But Stephen is not being disrespectful. He's not being aggressive. He's not being nasty. Why? Because he's right. The righteous don't have to do those things. Remember that. He starts his testimony with Abraham, the spiritual father of the Jews, and he talks about the fact that God appeared to Abraham and called him to leave everything he knew and to leave it all behind and go to a strange land and start a new nation. So he starts off with the inception of Israel's history. Now, I'm not sure what the Sanhedrin was thinking, but he starts off here, and you know what? They're listening to him. This is his moment to speak, and they're going to hear him out. They want to stone him. They want to kill him. They want to get rid of him, but they're letting him talk. Uh, and he, he begins to talk and he begins to just, you know, talk about Israel's inception. It's beginning. Now in verse five, he gets to Abraham. He talks about the fact that Abraham had no land that God had given him. He, he, he had none of the promised land, but yet his descendants were promised that possession and they would rule that entire region and the, the exact place where they were that very day. So there again, the Sanhedrin's listening to him and he's hitting all the, these points and he's making sense. Verses six through seven, he talks about the bondage of Egypt. How many know Egypt was a big part of Israel's history? And that bondage where they came in to Egypt, that's where God let them increase numerically and become a great nation. When they came into Egypt, they were small. I think uh, Jacob's household bring like 70 something people in. But when they came out, they were millions. That's growth, isn't it? 
So there again, they understood this was important. He talks about Egypt and in verse seven, the fact that God himself would judge the nation that enslaved uh, the Hebrews and afflicted his people. He documents that. In verse eight, he mentions the sign of circumcision. There again, another important topic to these religious people. They, they're liking what he's saying here. He, he mentions the symbolic cutting away of the flesh and the differentiating of Israel from all other nations. Now, they like this stuff here, but as he's talking about circumcision, realize there's gonna be an implication by the time he gets to the end of his defense here that you guys, you know what, your hearts haven't been circumcised. They've turned to stone again. So they're, they're not quite sure where he's going, but he's being factually accurate. He talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that they all circumcised uh, their children, and they were set apart by God uh, to be spiritual fathers. The 12 patriarchs were the nations uh, uh, who became the tribes of Israel. In verses 9 and 10, uh, he speaks of Joseph. So he moves on from Abraham to the patriarchs to Joseph. He's Chron, you know, chronologically, he's following order here. And the rise of Joseph's power in Egypt, where he becomes second in command under Pharaoh. Now, verses 11 through 19, you know, as we're moving through here, he talks about Joseph's contribution. There again, another important facet of the Jewish story here. And he talks about Joseph and all that he did and the hardships he endured to sustain Israel through famine. Uh, verse 17, the Jews multiplied greatly in Egypt. That's something we brought out. Uh, verses 18 and 19, after Joseph did his thing and he saved Egypt and he stored up grain for Pharaoh, another Pharaoh came who didn't know Joseph's contribution. And then the Jews went from being celebrated to being enslaved another pivotal moment in Israel's history. There again, you know, Stephen is, uh, you know, showing himself to be anointed and articulate and learned. And probably part of the reason they let him go on and on a little bit was that everything he was saying was spot on and it was articulate and they're thinking, who is this guy? You know, only we're supposed to know this stuff. We're the really smart guys. You know, it's amazing when you and I get the Holy Ghost and you and I get the anointing and the Holy Spirit fills our mouth, people have to take notice of what comes out of an anointed person's mouth when they're flowing in the anointing. <laughs> Maybe you brought people to church and they're like, you know, who is that guy up there? And, you know, who's ever preaching the word, whoever stands behind this pulpit has the anointing. And when the anointing flows, it's more than just a person speaking. It's God testifying. Amen, and they're seeing this in him, and they're like, you know, this guy is like showing himself to be scholarly here. Uh, he talks about Joseph's betrayal and the fact that his brothers were jealous of him and uh, the, his contribution uh, under you know, the Egyptian system and uh, all of the fact that the Jews were then enslaved and then they were exploited. And he makes a reference to all the Hebrew male infants being slaughtered under Pharaoh. So uh, this leads to, uh, you know, from Joseph to Moses, another. Moses is the key figure in Israel's history. Now they're, they're really liking to hear about Moses. They get all excited when you talk about Moses. Verse 20 through 43 is all about Moses. And he goes on and on about all of these things Moses. You know, I wonder how tense the room was there, you know, as he's going on and on and they're thinking, where is he going with this? Well, it, he's going somewheres, but it's not going to climax till the end. And they're not going to realize that they've been, they're like the lobster in the pot and the water's getting hotter. 
okay? <laughs> so 20 through 43, God preserves Moses from death in Egypt. All the babies were slaughtered. Moses was kept from that. Uh, he was raised up as an Egyptian, trained as an Egyptian. He had the best teaching, uh, yet he kills an Egyptian for mistreating a Hebrew slave, and then his own people reject him, and they're like, you know, who are you? You're not going to rule over us. You're not going to do, you know, who the heck do you think you are? So he hears that, and he thinks, wow, I've got to flee. He goes to Midian. He has two sons. He, he encounters a burning bush, and God reveals himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God sends Moses right back to Egypt to be what the people accused him of not being. He is the deliverer. And there again, they're thinking, all right, this is all good. Verses 36 through 38, Moses performs signs and parts the Red Sea and uh, prophesied that God would raise other prophets up to do signs. He receives the Ten Commandments. You know, Stephen's going to talk about this, that you received the law that was given by angels. Wow, it gets powerful at that moment here. This is where the law came. It came through Moses. He said, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him in their own hearts and turned back to Egypt. So there's the first sign that, you know, there's some trouble in this historical monologue that he's given here. He makes an accusation, what? That our fathers were unwilling to be obedient. You know, they're not getting it yet. The water's starting to heat up, but the lobsters haven't figured out that they're the ones who are disobedient. And they're the ones who are, are resisting God. And they're the ones whose hearts have turned back to Egypt, as it were. What does that mean? Egypt was symbolic of the world. You know, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the ruling body, they were completely worldly. Their kingdom was a worldly kingdom. And they were only concerned about maintaining their grip of power. If not, they would have celebrated the fact that God was moving and healing and setting captivity, but they were threatened by it. Unwilling to be obedient. Verses 40 through 41, he talks about Aaron and he made an idol and he talks about the golden calf that they worship. Now he, he, he talks about disobedience, now idolatry. And there again, there's another implication here. He said, you worshiped idols and demons like Molech and Rampa. So he's making references to the fact that they were spiritually wayward throughout their history. In verse 40, 44, the tabernacle is mentioned. Another pivotal part of Israel's history. Remember, they had a place to worship. God instructed Moses how to construct that tabernacle. And if you read about it in scripture, it is kind of a, a marvel the way it was constructed and God's presence abode there so that the children of Israel could have communion and fellowship with God, even as they traveled through the wilderness. Uh, we, we shift from Moses and talk about Joshua in verse 45. Joshua is mentioned briefly, and then we go right into the Davidic era. David is mentioned. Now remember, the Messiah was to come through whose line? David's good. So, you know, he's, he's making his way here. It's long. Everybody's, you know, they had no air condition in the synagogue there. This must have got to be a long speech. And so he's kind of bringing it down for landing to some degree as he talks to David. At least we're getting close now. David wants to build a permanent place for God to worship. They talked about the tabernacle and then that permanent place, but God wouldn't let him do it. And so Solomon was the one who did that. He makes reference to that. Verses uh, 51 through 53. Finally, the history lesson ends. And Stephen is about to make 
the point of this entire monologue, the point God wanted to make. And there again, I want you to see this. This is not Stephen. This is God speaking through Stephen. And when you and I are called to give an account about our faith, about the gospel, about why we're Christians, you can count on this. The Holy Spirit will speak through us. Maybe you've been in situations where, you know, someone asks you, well, why do you believe in Jesus? Or why are you a Christian? And all of a sudden, something rises up within you and you start saying stuff that sounds so good coming out of your mouth that even impresses you. (laughs) Come on, have you ever been there? (laughs) See, being a preacher, you get used to that. You're like, it's coming out and you're like, wow, that sounds good. I like that. (laughs) It's not my notes here. That's the Holy Ghost. Amen. And God's speaking, God is speaking here. And, you know, uh, what he's saying is, is very powerful. The history lesson is just about over. The point is about to be made. And the point that God wants to make is not going to be well received by the Sanhedrin. They haven't realized it, but, you know, the, they are the lobster in the pot. And now the water is just about at a full boil. Every word of Stephen's monologue was a reiteration of things that these elite, learned, holy scholars thought that they already knew. Did you ever have somebody tell you something that you figured, I already know that? You know, I've had people (laughs) who are spiritually immature, you know, tell me after a message, well, you know, I've heard that scripture before. I've heard that, you know, and it's just like, and and I just, you know, I'm listening. I'm going, well, are you living it? You got that in full operation in your life and you're, you're walking it out perfectly. Well, then shut up and listen to it again, right? How many times do I have to be told something until I get it? Anybody get it on the first try? Once in a while. I get it nuns in a while. I got to hear stuff over and over again. So these guys now realize he told them things that they already thought they knew. They didn't understand the point he was making. But, you know, these guys figure, you know, who are you talking to? We know this better than anyone. Who do you think you are telling us all of this stuff? You know, you know, we know this better than you ever could know it. Now, I found out something when you repeat something that people think they already know and you do it in painstaking detail and you're dramatic about it, you'll always succeed in accomplishing one thing. You'll inflame their pride and annoy them to the point of rage. And that's exactly what this does. It inflamed their pride. Who is this unlearned, uneducated, uh, unestablished person here telling us about Israel's history? He annoyed them to the point where their pride got worked up, and now they were lathered up into a rage. And this is exactly, in in some ways, this is exactly where God wanted to bring them, to inflame their pride. Why? Because pride shouldn't have been there. And to annoy them with truth. Why? Because they weren't used to having someone tell them the truth. They were thinking they called him on the carpet to give an account for what he was doing. And God says, wrong, guys. I'm calling you on the carpet for what you're doing. I'm preaching better than you shouting tonight. See how God turns the tables like that? Woo! (laughs) I kind of like it. 
God's making his point here. He, he, he repeated everything they thought they knew, and he's proven to them you don't know it. And now that you're hearing truth, you, you're, you're inflamed and your pride is up. And you know, you're all lathered up here into a rage. And God delivers them the message, the point of this whole thing. Do you notice the tone of Stephen changed right at the end, verses 51 through 53? His tone changed, his demeanor changed. I love the way they portray this because I think it was accurate. Look what he says in 51 through 53. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears have always resisted the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did you not persecute. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who have received the law ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Wow. You say, what was that? God brought them right to the place where he got their attention he got them lathered up so they were in the flesh, and then he rebuked them stiffly. You see, the whole point of this exercise here is not to get Stephen off, is not to, you know, he was destined to be the first martyr of the church. The whole point of the exercise here was for God Almighty to say some things to the leadership that needed to be said for decades. And he's sternly and openly rebuking them. Think about that. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. Oh, these guys weren't willing to hear that because they were the elites in their mind. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Think about this. Which one of the prophets did you not persecute? Wow. You stoned them, you killed them, you resisted them. You're the betrayers and the murderers of the Messiah. You nailed them to the cross there. You know how they like to be accused of that. That was one of the, their, their, the things that really bothered them, that you know they were gonna be responsible for Jesus's crucifixion. You received the law by angels, yet you did not keep it. The entire history lesson was articulated to show the pattern of disobedience that was now fully inflamed in their hearts. I want you to see the religious spirit here. I want you to see how hard-hearted it is and how spiritually blind it is. That despite every spiritual advantage that these men had, they had missed the kingdom of God. They had the prophets, they had the knowledge, they had the word of God. That despite the fact that God himself had had his hand in every step of their, their nation. I mean, you, you see it traced through their whole lineage. God was involved in everything they did. He kept them, he protected them, he raised up leaders for them that in spite of all that, at this point, they missed the Messiah. <laughs> and now that he'd risen from the grave and birthed his church and his Holy Spirit was moving, they were resisting that. Now these leaders were firmly standing against God's work, the kingdom of God, and the move of the Holy Spirit. The resurrected Christ was doing good things, and this man is being persecuted for the good things that he did. Verse 54, uh, this is an interesting thing here in 54. 
how, you know, you would think, well, you know, they're mad at him, so they didn't agree with what he said, and, you know, obviously they think he was wrong, but that's not the case. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth at him. So what does that mean, cut to the quick? They were convicted. What does that mean when you're convicted of something? That, that means you know it's right. If you lie and someone says you're a liar and you get mad, it's because they're right. If you steal and somebody says you're a thief and you get mad, it's because they're right. It's quiet now. What has been said here, they can't argue with. In fact, they are all convicted by it because they know that it's right. But their response to the conviction is not repentance. Why does God send the Holy Spirit to call us on the carpet to bring us to account so that we can be convicted and repent? God help us when the Holy Spirit convicts us and we refuse to repent. God help us when we come to the pastor for counseling and he gives us the word of God and we say, I'm not doing it. These guys were convicted, but instead of responding with repentance, they respond with violence. Wow. That shows the darkness of their hearts, doesn't it? Verse 55 through 56, Stephen, as they're getting all lathered up and as they're getting ready to snatch him up, he has an open vision of heaven. This is the final straw for them. Why? Because, you know, they said before they started that Stephen's face looked like an angel to them. Now the angel testifies full of the Holy Spirit and they're convicted by it. And the response is not to repent, but to get violent. Now he falls to his knees and he sees an open vision of heaven and he says some things that can be considered blasphemy. I see God. God. Uh-oh. Stonable offense. I see Jesus standing by the right hand of God. Uh-oh. Stonable offense. So there again, it goes, you know, from offensive to really offensive for them. They're violent. They're unrepentant. They're all lathered up now. Stephen has his open vision to heaven. Verse 57, this incites them even further, and they start screaming and covering their ears, and then they physically attack Stephen. I mean, can you imagine, what does it take for a grown man to cover his ears? Like you don't want to hear truth. So you act like a little baby. Nah, 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 nah. Think about that response. They cover their ears. They start screaming. They physically attack Stephen. The, te- the text says that they rushed him with one impulse. What does that mean? They were unified in their complete rejection of God's rebuke. They were unified in the fact that all they wanted to do is kill him and shut him up. Just like they did to the prophets. When the prophets prophesied things that the religious elites didn't want to hear, they would try and get rid of them. They would try and kill them. They would try and silence them. Why? Because they didn't want to hear Isaiah. They didn't want to hear Jeremiah. They didn't want to hear Ezekiel. No, they didn't want to hear God. (laughs) We live in a generation that doesn't want to hear God. Verse 58 through 60, the stoning of Stephen is summed up in three verses 
and there's not much there. Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church. You might say, God, why did you let them kill him? A good man, full of good works, doing the work of the Holy Spirit. Why would you let them murder this man? I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that the blood of the martyrs paved the way for the church that those willing to lay their lives down for the gospel's sake have always allowed the church to grow in leaps and bounds in ways that I can't explain, but God understands. Stephen is the first martyr. His life is taken away from him. Saul is present there who will become Paul. Paul will be the greatest apostle who ever lived and write two-thirds of the New Testament. But today is not that day. This day, he is a religious elitist. He is a, a member of the Pharisees, and he stands there as the presiding elder in his scholarship. They lay their clothing and their cloaks at his feet, and it's a symbol that he approves of what they're doing, and he's assisting in the fact that, you know, he's kind of like, you know, watching over the coats there, he's like showing that he is in complete agreement with the fact that they are murdering this man. Stephen cries out to Jesus to receive his spirit. And like Jesus, he prays that God would forgive them for murdering him. Do not hold this sin to their account. What did Jesus say? Forgive them for they know not what they do. So his life is taken and while that's a sad thing, realize God used him to make a testimony. He used them to set the leadership straight, to pay notice on them in a way that from that moment forward, they would, not, they would be without excuse that they heard the voice of God calling them to repentance and they rejected the message and they killed the messenger. It's a pattern that is all throughout the Old Testament. It is the culmination of the religious spirit. And the religious spirit did not die with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's still alive and well today. And we should be very careful that it doesn't creep into our lives, into our homes, into our churches. Because it's a killer. And it resists the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you tonight for this chapter. And Father, while it's a, a lengthy chapter and at wordy at moments and uh, many times even hard to understand where it's headed. Uh, Father, I pray tonight by the Holy Spirit, you've made sense of it for us, that forever we can understand that you want to testify to the generations. You wanted to use this man and even his martyrdom to testify to a wayward generation to say what you needed to say. Father, and I pray as the church is the church and stands up and testifies to this generation, they may reject us and they may want to destroy us, but God, testify through your church to the darkness that's all around us that those who have ears to hear would come out and be saved. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise tonight.